Good morning. Merry Christmas. There is about uh, five or six churches now in Presbytery that uh, I feel like I'm at home in, having preached regularly in them. And it's nice to have so many brothers and sisters that I know and I get to visit from time to time. I'm glad to be with you again today. Proverbs says, those who set traps will themselves, themselves be trapped. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, The Trap Setters Get Trapped, from uh, Mark, the uh, 12th chapter. So if you turn there with me, and I will read the verses, and then we will talk about them. The Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living you are quite wrong. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you give our minds understandings and our souls and spirits encouragement as we look into this, your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Phil has been leading you through the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'd like to supplement this series uh, by looking at a commentary, so to speak, of Jesus on the patriarchs. This statement that um, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not merely a genealogical statement. It is a formula that carries with it that these who were dead when Moses wrote these things were still actually alive. Jehovah is, not was, the God of Abraham. They are very much alive and are part of an eternal kingdom where they will have bodies again. Jesus makes this point in our passage this morning why I chose it and this is the main thrust of what we'll be looking at today, though other things will be mentioned too as we see Jesus and the Sadducees 
um, talking to each other. There are many misconceptions about heaven, resurrection, and eternal life. And ashamedly, we get more from our movies, books, and cultures than we do from a systematic, serious study of the Bible. And so there are many things that impact our view, but ashamedly at times it's not the Bible. So we may have conceptions of heaven that are not necessarily biblically based, but yet they're popular and part of our culture anyway. Atheism and agnosticism, saying there is no God or we can't know if there is a God or not, are growing and are becoming more prevalent in our day um, in our rationalistic, science-based world. Deism was popular back when, the, when America was founded, and the, the likes of John Witherspoon, a Presbyterian minister, um, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, the only minister, I think, who, who did, um, opposed the downgrade happening in his day in the Presbyterian church. So Presbyterians fighting against downgrade isn't anything new. It's been going on ever since Presbyterianism um, began. The history of the congregation I served at Mount Laurel for 33 years was one of pulling out of the PCUSA because they were ordaining ministers who no longer believed in a bodily resurrection. Many people today don't believe in heaven. They just believe we die and rot. We're like hardware and software that served its time and is worn out and ends. Others believe that we all go to heaven, whatever that place may be. But passages like the one we look at this morning helps us deal with those misconceptions that are all around us. Now, the issues that daily Jesus is facing here is no different than what we're facing in our own day. The more things change, the more they remain the same. That's one of the benefits of studying history and studying especially biblical history. Jesus was becoming a political liability to the nation. Those in authority had tolerated as much as they could of Jesus' popularity and the real threat of him creating a movement that would overturn the status quo, which was a delicate balance between the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, allowing Israel to be a nation on its own. One false move, and Rome could crush Israel, and indeed that happened some 40 years after Jesus was crucified. A leader by the name of Bar Kokhba resulted in the destruction of the temple, never to be rebuilt again, and the destruction of Israel, who did not come back again until the modern era some 2,000 years later. These leaders were engaging Jesus publicly, and they're trying to discredit him. They set various traps to get Jesus discredited and ridiculed over his teaching. One such trap is seen in the verses we're looking at now. We see Jesus deftly entrapping them in the trap that they set for him. Two points. One, a question meant the trap. And two, the trappers get trapped. First of all, the question meant the trap is covered in verses 18 through 23. 
In the previous section, the Pharisees and Herodians had tried to trap Jesus with a question on taxation. See, it was a very political opposition to Jesus. And they were trying to use taxation to trap, much like people will, in political debates today, bring up taxation and try to trap somebody, make them look ridiculous in the, the policy they hold in that issue. Having failed in doing that, though, the Sadducees now, a sect of the priests, taking their name after the, the high priest in David's day, Zadok, uh, they try to trap Jesus. They were the liberals of their day. They were the liberals of their day because they rejected most of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, as being biblically inspired. They held to the first five books of Moses, but even then, holding those books, they interpreted it so narrowly um, and strictly. They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in the spirit world. And as today, there are people in the liberal church who do not believe in, 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 in some of these things also. But in their question, they act like they do believe it. They set up a straw man, so to speak, asking a question that they hope would show how ridiculous it would be to hold to a future life. They posit a situation where a woman is widowed six times. It is posited on the brother-in-law regulation that a brother was to marry his childish sister-in-law so that the estate would remain in the dead brother's name through the firstborn of that new union. Thinking that they have Jesus trapped in an unsolvable quandary, they ask which brother will be her husband at the resurrection. They thought they could get Jesus trapped in this and make him and his arguments look ridiculous, especially in the face of the law and the illogicness of the resurrection. Modernists might try the same thing with you, ridiculing the resurrection as being absurd and illogical when from a human point of view it may be, but from the point of view of scriptures and the power of God, it's not. So Jesus answers, verses 24 through 27, and we'll spend the concentration on taking a look at how he entraps them, how he answers them. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason why you are wrong? Some translations say mistaken. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He is not the one on trial here. They are. He is publicly going to correct their errors and discredit them. They set up a straw man and he's going to knock it down. And then he says, you are wrong because you do not know. They think they know, but they really do not know. But their question shows that they really do not know. Sometimes it is the most ignorant and unknowledgeable that are, are, are the most forward in their positions. Don't let somebody's aggressiveness in their position fool you when it's based on biblical ignorance. 
and lack of the knowledge of the power of God. He says, firstly, because you know neither the scriptures, they did not know the scriptures because they rejected most of the scriptures. Just like many churches today from, from mainline churches, once respected who followed the word of God and no longer consider it God's inspired and inerrant word. They rejected the Psalms. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the histories. And the part they did accept, the Pentateuch, they interpreted so narrowly to only allow naturalistic explanations. They knew the scriptures in the sense that they could quote them, but they had no idea what the scriptures meant. So today, there are many so-called Christian leaders who read the Bible, but from unbelief and without the Spirit of God, they reject what it really says, unable to interpret it, interpreting it to mean something entirely different. You know that you can go to Princeton and not take one biblical book, they're, 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 they're um, options now to take biblical books. Why did they misunderstand about the word of God? What did they misunderstand about this? Well, first of all, they misunderstood the nature of marriage. Paul says in Romans 7, 2 through 3, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. When he dies, she is free to marry another. Despite what we ministers like to say at wedding ceremonies about the ring having no end and lasting through eternity, and we get the idea that marriages last forever, it isn't so. It is only until death. And that marriage being over, there is now the, the rightness of having a new marriage. If marriage was for eternity, you could never marry again. But the Bible allows remarriage. And as Paul says very clearly, marriage, the marriage ends at death. And in the resurrection, all have died except those who are alive at Jesus' coming, and then those marriages are over too. Marriage is for this earthly life. And when we are given new bodies, they are not merely physical bodies, but are new spiritual bodies that never die we become, as Jesus says here, the angels of, like the angels of heaven. Verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. There is no more marriage. There is no more procreation. There's no longer those things that were a part of the original uh, garden in which God saw that man was alone and he needed a helpmate. In the new heavens and the new earth, that is no longer so. So their question is ridiculous, based on ignorance. The whole heavenly life and what it was about was obscure to them. It is an angelic life. And no angel, despite some interpretations of the Old Testament, had a wife or children though hopefully those memories of attachment to a spouse will remain with us, and maybe we will have a wonderful relationship in heaven as perfect people now, 
enjoying the time we had together on earth and the family we had and those things. It is now a different relationship entirely, new and a deeper, better relationship and the perfection of God's heaven. And it will also be a time for judgment, for us to reflect and for Jesus to, to call us on the ways we sinned against our spouse and hurt them rather than encourage them and bless them. He continues to show their error in the scripture in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to them saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says to them, almost insultingly, have you never read about the burning bush and what God said to Moses? Have you never read that? Well, of course they had read that, but they had read it, but they had never really understood it. For if they had, they would understand that he says, I am the God of people that are mentioned who are already long dead by the time Moses had come on the scene. He doesn't say, I was the God. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who at that time, the long dead were still alive, using the continuous text from the Hebrew that they continued in existence. That relationship continued to exist between God and those individuals. You see, every word proceeds from God and must be considered. Even the word am is there for a reason, inspired and given for our instruction. He is still the God of these people who still live. So there's an implication here that these were still alive and one day they would be raised and restored to paradise, walking with God in new resurrected bodies again. Yes, those who deny the resurrection and eternal life do so because of their ignorance of the teaching of Scripture. Those who make ridiculous arguments against it do not strike at the heart of eternal life doctrine, but that their own unbelief in the Scriptures they say they claim to know. It is beyond me how in 1941 and our church sent a, a student supply to go to be ordained that he was ordained and then when they, they ordained a man at the same meeting after him who denied the resurrection and didn't think Paul taught the resurrection and this young newly ordained minister stood up and said how can you ordain a man who does not believe in the physical resurrection? You know what Presbyterian did? They turned around and took away his ordination because he didn't have a pastoral spirit. To confront somebody with unbelief in the scriptures and then to be told you don't have a pastoral spirit? And the elders and the minister went back disgusted and they pulled out immediately. They left their church building and they met in an empty lot next door in a tent and the church continued losing their property and everything, even a brand new organ they had just spent, spent much time trying to raise the money for because of the resurrection. 
God is the God of the living. God is not the God of the dead. Therefore, anyone who opposes the resurrection opposes God, opposes the Scripture, and as Jesus says here, is quite wrong. Secondly, he says, verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. As it says in the New Testament, there is religion that has the forms of religion but not the power of God. This is the type of religion the Sadducees had. It was religion of sacrifices and reconciliation and forgiveness and all those wonderful things, but did not have the power of God. Is our faith merely an intellectual faith or do we know the power of God? The power of God in our salvation. The power of God in answered prayer. The power of God in overcoming our sin. There is nothing that God cannot do. I remember a theological thing um, in, in seminary, and we were talking about what God could and can't do. Of course, there's things God can't do. God can't sin. But one of the questions was, philosophically speaking, can God make a stone big enough and heavy enough that he can't lift it? And the, theo the theological answer is, yes, he can, and then he'll lift it. <laughs> because God can do all things. God doesn't fit in logical categories. You can't put God in a box. He who made all the things we see around us, he who raised people from the dead through the prophets, people coming back to death show the power of God to do things which reveals that these people relied more on their reasoning than they did on the power of God. I was commenting to Marilyn as I drove the church, everything looks so dead. We've got the example, the power of God bringing back to life every fall and spring. Everything looks dead, but it comes back to life. The illustration of the resurrection, the trees, having their, their seed go into the ground and a new plant to rise up. And, and that's the illustration of us and our resurrection as seed gets planted in the ground. And who would think by the little seed of a redwood tree that in 2,000 years you'll have this, this amazingly tall or, or, or wonderful tree coming out of this little seed. That's the power of God. God can do more than we can even think or imagine. Our imagination is unable even to understand the full depth of what God can do. It is those who have given up on the doctrine of the omnipotence of God, of his power, that have such little belief in the resurrection and eternal life. Don't be surprised that people don't believe in the resurrection if they no longer believe and a God of all power. So a response to the liberals, people who, logically speaking, don't know the Bible, 
our God's power is set right here before us. May we have no such doubts. In John eleven twenty five, my salvation verse, Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And after saying these words, Jesus raised the stinking, decaying body of Lazarus from the dead, showing that the words that he spoke were true, demonstrating the power of God to bring back to life. The response of the priest to this, well, when you read through the rest of that chapter, the response of the priests were not to fall down acknowledging God's power and glorify him. They gathered together to determine how they could kill Jesus because of the things he was teaching, the things that he was doing. They couldn't accept it. They had to kill it. They had to eliminate it. And that's the way it is with so many today. They have to kill the true biblical faith. They have to oppose it in every single way rather than fall down before it and hearts of humility. How did they think that they could kill the one who raised the dead? One who had life in himself and gave life to others. But that is the ignorance of hearts that know not the scripture, nor the power of God. As you continue in your study of the patriarchs, understand that you are not looking at meaningless ancient history of people who have no connectedness to us today. They are the living people of God, and their faith is connected to us by faith, and we will be with them in heaven. They alive, we alive, because God is our God. We are not dead. We will not be gone. They are in the living God, and so are we might be a good exercise this afternoon to read Hebrews 11 where it talks about the patriarchs pursuing a city made not with human hands in heaven that God had prepared for them. They weren't looking just for some physical promised land in the Middle East. They were looking for eternity, a home in heaven with God those, those who view things in a narrow way only see this as a nation looking for a physical land in the Middle East, but they didn't. They looked beyond that. We have to, when we read the Old Testament, be looking not just at the superficial human level as it's reported, but look behind it to the faith that is going on behind it that God promised them not just an earthly kingdom here, but God promised them an eternity where he would be their God and he would be, he would be their God and they would be his people. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that he's the resurrection life? Have you trusted in him for forgiveness? Are you assured that upon your death you'd be going to heaven? You will be because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you indeed for your word. We thank you for the power that is in it. We thank you for the things that it teaches us. And if there's someone here who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ and trusted in him and have hope for eternal life, that this might be the day that they do so, that they be confronted with their unbelief in Scripture and unbelief in your power. And those of us who do, may these words be an encouragement to us that the, that the, the desire of ages has come. And now in him, we join with all the other generations of believers as one new humanity, resurrected in heaven, being with you in that new heavens and new earth. Encourage us with that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.